The El Gacela Concerto is a national treasure, you might say. It's a national musical monument. It's one of the best loved of all British orchestral pieces. It's played by great cellists the world over, and I'm told that the recording with Jacqueline Dupre and Sir John Barbaroli is one of the best-selling classical recordings of all time. Well, we're going to hear some different performers in the Elgar Cello Concerto today. The soloist is Christian Polterra, BBC Radio 3 New Generation artist. We have the BBC Symphony Orchestra, leader Daniel Rowland, and our conductor today is Alexander Brigger. So, some of you may be wondering what there is left to say about a work like this. Well, plenty, I think. Um, especially because when a piece does become a national monument, it's very easy to take a monument for granted, isn't it? And a number of times, I'm sure, some of us who live in London have walked past the Albert Memorial without stopping to look at it. And that's the danger, I think it is, when a piece becomes as well-established as the Elgar Cello Concerto. When Elgar finished the concerto, which was in 1919, just after the end of the First World War, cello concertos were actually very rare creatures indeed. Well, there was even prejudice against the cello amongst the best informed. I was rather surprised to discover the famous Manchester Guardian critic Neville Cardus writing as late as 1939 of the wasp-in-the-window effect, which most times we have to put up with whenever a cellist gets to work. So Elgar was actually taking quite a risk when he wrote a concerto for the cello in 1919. And in fact, it wasn't at all successful at its first performance later that year. That was partly because Elgar himself, as a composer, had started to go radically out of fashion at the end of the First World War. His star had risen during the Edwardian era. That was when he'd been at his most successful. And as the climate of opinion, as the cultural climate began to change after the war, Elgar fell into a kind of musical eclipse for a while. But another reason why it might not have been a success at the first performance is that it's very challenging to play, which is not simply the same as saying that it's technically difficult, although it's that as well. Let's start looking at some of the difficulties that our soloist, Christian Polterra, is going to have to cope with tonight. Christian, would you mind playing the opening of the concerto for us just on your own? Elgar is asking the cellist to do something rather interesting in terms of the role of the concerto here, because normally if there's an ear-catching fortissimo at the beginning of a romantic concerto, it's the orchestra that plays it. But here is Elgar expecting the cello to do the work of the orchestra virtually on his own, so those big, thick chords. He has to catch our attention. I also wondered whether Elgar might have been thinking of a kind of model when he wrote that opening, because actually if you look at romantic works for the cello before the Elgar Concerto was written, like the Dvorak Concerto, the Schumann Concerto, or Brahms's Cello Sonatas, there's not often very much of that big, thick, three- or four-part chord writing. But Elgar might have had a model for it in something much earlier, because people had started to rediscover the solo string works of Bach. 
This is the beginning of the slow movement, the Sarabande, from the cello suite number one in G. I'll just ask Christian to play this for us, which has very similar kind of slashing bow movements across the strings to create chords. cello not only has to play the melody, he has to fill in the harmonies as well, and that's quite striking. While the cello's writing is so rich and full, the orchestral writing is actually unbelievably spare and transparent, very unusually so for Elgar. Let's take it from after the cello's opening proclamation, and you'll, you'll see what I mean. The tune we heard played by the violas and carried over to the cellos, it's very unusual to hear Elgar introduce a tune like that, just on its own, absolutely no accompaniment at all. Normally, I think we think of Elgar in association with very rich, opulent orchestral textures, but this is so sparse it could almost be something like late Shostakovich. One feature that is very Elgarian about that tune is that it's based on a regular repeating rhythm. Da, da, dum, da, dum. Um, lots and lots of Elgar's tunes, if you try and imagine something like Land of Hope and Glory, for instance, they're often based on a rhythm that repeats dum dum da da dum 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 da da dum dum and so on to the end of the tune. Now, there's a reason for this, because Elgar was one of those composers who loved to have his ideas while he was out walking. And those of you who are walkers will know how often, when, particularly if you're marching uphill, you find yourself singing tunes in your head on repeated rhythms to keep yourself going. So I think that all Elgar's tunes, or at least this kind of tune, are at basis, are a kind of walking tune. They're a marching tune. They're a tune that you sing to yourself as you're walking, hence the repeated pattern. But there's also another sense about this music, though, an extraordinary sense of, of wistfulness, of melancholy, of nostalgia about it as well. Although Elgar doesn't seem to have realized it at the time, this was to be Elgar's last complete major work, even though he lived for another 15 years of his life. One reason for that may have been that his wife died six months later, and his wife was a great moral support to him as a composer for such a lot of his life. 
But another reason may be because that climate of cultural climate was changing so much after the war that Elgar no longer felt himself quite so engaged with the musical world and nor that the musical world's quite so interested in him. And that may be a reason why he felt that the urge was beginning to wane. Even so, I know that some people have said that listening to this music, they can hear some of that kind of sadness, that the a sense of something coming to an end. And it may be that that is possibly something that informs the emotional character of this music. Certainly, having said that nobody does melancholy quite like Elgar, there's still tremendous zest in that music at the end, a lot of the old fire in the music, that skyrocketing E minor scale at the end. But anyway, what happens after that big climax? That walking theme subsides, it falls down into the bass instruments, and then, as typically in a concerto movement, there's a second theme. Well, it's a new theme, but it still has something of that kind of overcast sky melancholy that we heard at the very beginning of the concerto. And it's still in the same key, E minor, the home key of the concerto, which is also unusual in a concerto movement. But then comes a wonderful blossoming into the major key, and it's as though the sun suddenly comes out from behind that blanket of cloud. Now that's a lot more like the old glad, confident Edwardian Elgar of the pre-war days, with a much richer orchestral accompaniment in the background. 
It seems that the music is expanding in confidence. The mood is becoming brighter. But then, interestingly enough, the E minor sad little dance returns. And then the opening theme, the 9-8 walking theme, the melancholy theme from the beginning returns as well. So this movement is a huge, big symmetrical pattern, like a kind of arch. You could say A, B, C, B, A, which is very unusual for a concerto first movement. I think Elgar has a reason for this, because however warm and confident and expansive that music we just heard said, it's framed entirely by much darker, sadder, and sparser music on either side. So that it actually is though the, that warmth that's associated with the earlier Elgar is recalled in this passage, as though Elgar is remembering it from a much sadder and older and wiser, perhaps, position in 1919. Anyway, for music builds to a climax as it did before with another version of that skyrocketing, thrilling cello scale, and then falls back once again to the low E on the orchestral cellos and basses. And this is a kind of link to the second movement, but it's actually rather interesting. If you're making a, a commercial recording and you have to put tracks on it, it's not that clear exactly where you'd say the second movement begins. It's one of the most beautifully dovetailed transitions I think I know, certainly in English music. It begins with a memory of those big, rich chords we heard at the beginning of the concerto. Only now, Elgar doesn't have the cellists bow them, he has them pluck them, so they sound more skeletal and spectral. And immediately, something else tries to rouse itself. Tentatively, a new figure in repeated notes appears on the cello. Constantly, that little figure keeps trying to break free. The little figure in repeated notes, and yet it never seems to get anywhere. And always the music seems to be looking back to the first movement. But then next comes one of those passages where I think Elgar shows what a true Anglo-Saxon he is, where he sort of picks himself up by the bootstraps. You can imagine him telling himself to pull himself together. Enough of this brooding. It's time to get going. And the scherzo bursts into action. One of those movements that probably ought to carry a health warning for cellists about the possibilities of repetitive strain injury because that little those repeated quavers go on 
over and over and over again through this movement, right to the end. It's like what they used to call the perpetuum mobile, a perpetual motion piece in which the same motion is carried on right the way to the end. But not quite to the end. There's a lovely pizzicato final flourish, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear some of the, the humor that, that was so typical of the youthful Elgar picking up right at the end of this movement. It's a long way, it seems, from the desolate sadness that was in there in parts of the first movement. The slow movement of the Elgar Cello Concerto is incredibly simple, and yet it's also one of the most eloquently beautiful things I think Elgar ever wrote. The orchestra is reduced for this movement to just pairs of clarinets, bassoons, and horns, plus strings. And above that is a sustained song for the solo cello. You can hear the opening phrases, they, the way they aspire and then seem to catch their breath continually as though the movement were sort of pausing before it finally breaks into song. I do think there's a quite specific element of memory in that opening phrase, or in those opening phrases. If you keep in mind those aspiring rising phrases, dum, dum, ta, dum, 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 ta, dum, on the cello, they're incredibly like some phrases near the beginning of a piano piece, one of the most famous pieces of all by the German composer Robert Schumann. It's a composition for solo piano, but there's also, fortunately for us, a famous arrangement for strings. So let's just hear the opening bars of Schumann's piano piece. I'd like to ask the leader, if you don't mind, would you mind playing just those rising phrases at the end of that so that we can hear the connection with the Elgar? They're almost identical to the phrases the cello plays at the beginning of the slow movement. And the piece is called Träumerei, Dreaming. And it's from Schumann's collection of piano pieces called Kinderzenen, Scenes from Childhood. And I do think that both titles are extremely significant for Elgar. First of all, Schumann was a composer of crucial significance for Elgar. In fact, there are many passages in Elgar where you can hear Schumann's influence. 
But the image of the dreaming child, which is so strongly associated with the Schumann piece, is also of crucial significance for Elgar. Elgar himself recalled himself very fondly in his own elder years as a dreaming child sitting beside the River Severn at Worcester looking at the distant Malvern Hills and feeling that they represented a kind of land of lost content. So that Elgar should recall Schumann's dreaming child in a work that's heavy with nostalgic associations, I don't think that's coincidental. And perhaps it provides a clue as to what this great heart-rending cello aria that forms the slow movement of the concerto might actually be about, or if not exactly about, at least what the connections were in Elgar's mind when he wrote it. Such a shame to cut it off like that, but don't worry, you'll hear the full thing in a moment or two. The final memory, as it were, of the Schumann and Elgar as the dreaming child in this movement is left uncompleted at the end. The final harmony of this movement is unresolved. It's like a memory that's half-spoken and then dies on the lips. The beginning of the finale does pick up on exactly the harmony that the slow movement ended up on. But it's another surprise, too, because this is another one of those Elgar pull-yourself-together moments where he seems to want to snap himself out of the dreaming, the reverie quality that he's been involved in in the slow movement and get going on another of these marching, striding, walking tunes. At last, we've got something like an old-fashioned Elgar marching tune with big, solid orchestral harmonies and a touch of the old swagger that you associate maybe with the pomp and circumstance marches. But those shifting, changing harmonies do give it a slightly uneasy feeling at the same time. And when that passage is finished, the cello seems to feel the need to try this theme out a bit reflectively to see if it's made of quite the right stuff for a proper finale. And on the way, there's another striking memory, another example of these recollections that's so important to the cello concerto. It's the rising figure we heard from very near the start of the first movement, as though this is a memory that won't be quite so easily banished. This is how we first heard it in the first movement.
Well, that figure returns in the middle of the cello's first solo passage in the finale. It's again, it's an interesting sort of recollection of an earlier move that seems for a moment almost to undermine this precarious new confidence in the finale. So this marching tune seems to have tremendous momentum to it, and yet always it seems to break up at its most confident and there are strange, uncertain, ambiguous harmonies. And finally, towards the end of the finale, it seems to run out of steam altogether. The tempo drops and a slow section begins, dominated by the soloist, and full of Elgar's most tortured chromatic harmonies. But what might this anguish be about? Does Elgar provide us with a clue? Well, yes, I think he does, because a little way into that passage, the meter changes from four in a bar to three in a bar, and again, we have a memory of something from earlier in the concerto. It's so beautifully dovetailed, you, you might miss it, but at the end of that passage, Elgar has brought us right back to the slow movement and to the music associated with that image of the dreaming child that meant so much to him. This time, it's still more poignant, and once again, the memory seems to die in mid-phrase, though this time, on a dissonance, it's left hanging in mid-air. What now? 
You can't end a concerto like that, or at least, obviously, Elgar felt you couldn't. So what we have is a marvelously gruff reminder of the very opening harmonies from the beginning of the concerto, those big, massive chords. Now they're still more emphatic on the cello, with punched-out chords from the full orchestra in the manner of a recitative. And then, finally, the orchestra and the cello march off to a brusque conclusion. So that robust march tune has the last word. But it ends in E minor. The key is still the minor key right at the very end. That really is worth drawing attention to because when you look at the romantic concerto repertoire, it's very hard indeed to find examples that end in the dark minor key. Concertos normally end with the victory of the soloist in some form or other, certainly in the Romantic repertoire, but after Mozart, it's extremely difficult to find examples of concertos that end in the minor, like that one just has. The only two I could find after extensive research and picking the brains of friends were Hummel's A minor piano concerto and Saint-Saëns G minor, so that gives an indication of how rare they are. But I think that Elgar has a reason for ending this cello concerto in the minor key like this rather than conventionally and triumphantly in the major. It gives this ending of this, his last complete masterpiece a fascinatingly ambiguous quality because there is a robust, defiant, energetic quality about that march tune. And yet there's still that minor key dark coloring. It gives us a suggestion perhaps of stoicism, or maybe that those memories, those painful memories, those nostalgic memories associated with the dreaming child and with former happiness are perhaps so painful that they've left their coloring past their shadow, even over the very final bars of the work. It's one of the things that makes this ending of the cello concerto so personal. Many people have said they would agree with Elgar's own verdict after he'd written it, that it was the finest thing he'd ever written. So let's hear a complete performance now of Elgar's cello concerto in E minor. Our soloist is the BBC Radio 3 New Generation artist Christian Polterra. The BBC Symphony Orchestra is led by Daniel Rowland, and our conductor is Alexander Brigger. 